0: CP podcast 82. So in this episode we're talking to upper limb specialist physio Marie Welsh about wrist fractures because these are one of the most common injuries we will see in outpatient physiotherapy and one of the most common fractures our patients will suffer. In this we go through classification, assessment findings and how we treat these in practice. So if you're ready let's dive in. Hey Marie, thank you so much for joining me once again on the podcast. Today we're talking about wrist fractures. These are injuries we see all the time in outpatient physiotherapy and with your specialist upper limb knowledge I'm delighted to have you involved. So first of all I thought we might just touch upon some of the different statistics that we might see about these kind of injuries because they are really important to mention. First of all, there are lots of patients who present with wrist fractures. It's suggested that 17 and percent, one in six of all adult fractures are wrist fractures. That's a huge proportion. If we think that this is the wrist and hand that's affected here, the ADLs, the functionality of that person's upper limb completely changes when they've had a wrist fracture. We know these are more common in females than males at a ratio of three to one. And we know that osteoporosis is a huge factor in wrist fractures. Sometimes you find that the way in which an individual is diagnosed with osteoporosis is that they have a wrist fracture and then they have consequent investigations. It can be potentially seen on their x-ray. They might then get referred to have a DEXA scan, which shows osteoporosis. So as well as osteoporosis, leading someone to a potential diagnosis of a wrist fracture before the x-ray, it also works the other way around. The wrist fracture can be what then leads to the diagnosis of osteoporosis. We know that 50% of these fractures are intra-articular. What that means is that the actual fracture line, the actual break, hits the joint line of the wrist, and those have extra complications because when the actual fracture is at the actual joint line it means that whenever there's movement at the wrist it means that the actual fracture is being irritated there perhaps and we also know that the other 50 percent therefore are extra articular not involving the joint line but naturally involving the key bones the radius and the ulna. So Marie now let's talk about classification of these wrist fractures and The most common terms that people will probably hear are Colley's fractures and Smith's fractures. Now, both of these are fractures of the distal radius, but there is a subtle difference between the two. So would you mind talking through some of the key things that you think about with these classifications?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So essentially the difference between a Collie's fracture and a Smith's fracture is the movement direction of the fracture segment. So when you break your wrist and you do a foosh, so fall onto an outstretched hand, the fracture segment, so the bit of bone that's broken, is likely to go dorsally, so move backwards towards the back of your hand because of the angle that you've fallen at, that's called a collie's fracture. So where the fracture segment starts to bend backwards into a dorsal angulation, that's a collie's fracture. Whereas a smith's fracture is when the fracture segment bends the other way, so towards the palm of the hand, so palmer angula- angulation. So um, Colles fractures are a lot more common than smith's because the most common incidence for a wrist fracture is a foosh. So by definition essentially it's going to be much more common to get that dorsal angulation of the fracture segment whereas with smiths it's when people tend to fall on their their wrist in a flexed position which is much less common
0: awesome yeah that totally makes sense foosh fall onto outstretched hand and any individual even ourselves you can think of when you fall to the floor the first thing you do is you put your hand out in a wrist extended position to try and break your fall and therefore it means that the angulation is more direct more likely to to be uh dorsally angulated, therefore, as you said, it means that that's the classification of a Colley's fracture. And of course, as we said, both Colley's fractures and Smith's fractures is where you have the radius which is fractured, um, but the angulation differs. We also then have a Barton's fracture. So a Barton's fracture is also a distoradial fracture, but this is where we have an intraarticular component to it. So as we said earlier, where the actual fracture line occurs at the joint line. And as Marie was talking about earlier, this can be either dorsally angulated or volar angulated. And if you wanna see those things in more detail about the angles and the x-rays for dorsal and volar angulation, just have a look at the wrist fractures webinar. I goes through this in great detail. All right, let's talk about the important stuff, Marie. Let's say that we are now treating our patient in physiotherapy and we're assessing them for the first time. So sometimes these patients will be given a plaster of paris after they have their fracture and the patient might be in a frac- in, in that part plaster of paris from anywhere from a week up to a, a little bit longer perhaps even up towards uh, 10 days. Have you heard of longer than that for a simple fracture?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Some people we managed in a cast for up to 6 weeks. Right. Um, it varies depending on what the common practice is by the orthopods in your area.
0: Cool. And some of these patients will also have a surgical fixation, won't they, if the fracture was so severe?
1: Yeah, the majority are managed conservatively. There are some patients where they will be managed operatively and those tend to be the more complex fractures. The ones say so they're comminuted or really big displacements. Um where the likelihood of them healing without surgical input to try and improve that compression um, through the fracture sites to enable the healing is unlikely to happen without some kind of surgery. Otherwise, majority, large majority are managed conservatively.
0: Cool. So therefore, when we talk about that positioning, we're talking about the Uh, bones being in an optimal position located next to each other
1: yeah having some contact crossover if you've got no contact between the fragments you're not going to it's going to be really different not going to say it's not going to heal but it's going to be really difficult for your body to heal Um, whereas if they're closer together obviously in as close to anatomical positioning as possible it just means that you've got more optimal conditions for the bones to heal
0: Absolutely. That sounds great. And we refer to that as malunion or nonunion when we don't have that positioning correct. And and therefore, as you said, that's where surgery can be really important to get a good position. So thank you. That totally makes sense. So what do you find are some of the challenges that patients have? They've just, let's say they've just had their cast taken off. And sometimes in hospitals, they'll get seen in fracture clinic, And then they'll get walked immediately, immediately round from fracture clinic to physiotherapy to say, go and see a physio because now you need to get your hand moving.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the main things is fear and fear avoidance of moving. That can be from a number of different reasons. That can be because, like you said, they've literally just had their cast taken off. So they're probably in quite a lot of pain, um, scared feel a bit unprotected or sometimes it can be th- things that we might not have thought about so for example it, it isn't always common practice to repeat an x-ray after a cast removed or when you're planning to remove a cast to check for healing some places will check that at two weeks to make sure that they don't need to intervene because obviously if it's not in a good position at two weeks you've still got a window for surgery in the acute stages where and then for the remaining four perhaps that they're in the cast they might not then have another x-ray so I've certainly had patients that are scared to move their wrist because they don't feel like they know that it's healed so Kind of talking through the reasoning there of if it was all right at the two week mark, the likelihood of it moving while you've been immobilized is really, really minimal. Um, they'll have seen the orthopedic team that day as well. So, you know, that should give them some reassurance. So there's lots of fear, I think, that comes mm. with things. Um I think the key things when you're meeting someone for the first time particularly if they've just had their cast removed, is lots of reassurance good advice on pain control and education on the importance of early movement and that will look different depending on what the protocols are um, where you're working but essentially we should be getting the patients to get it moving as much as possible Um, where I've worked previously there hasn't really been any protocols there's been no particular restrictions it's just been go rehab as as the patients can manage so for some people that might look like something really really basic like passive range especially the really fearful ones getting them to use their other hand or getting their partner to help move it for them is a good starting point whereas others you know you always get the stoic patients they're like yeah I just got to crack on um can do a lot lot more and you might be talking about active active assisted or over pressures depending on what they can tolerate but certainly in that kind of first contact lots of reassurance lots of education getting pain control and early movement from an assessment perspective, I'll always want to do a bit of a, a screening to make sure there's nothing that's been missed. So I'll confirm what's happened. If we've got access to x-rays, I'll have a look at them before the patient comes in, just so I can make sure that I've got a bit of an understanding about the fracture pattern. Because as we've already alluded to, if there's quite a big displacement, if it's intra-articular, is there an ulnar styloid fracture as well? Um, it just kind of helps build that picture. Um, especially if you've got a more elderly patient that's had quite a bad fracture where typically they may have operated, but they've reasoned through either comorbidities or the patient didn't want it and they haven't had surgery. That just helps from expectation setting. Mm. You know, if they've got a really nasty looking fracture that ordinarily would have been operated on you're probably not going to get amazing results so being able to start those conversations early expectations set about you're not going to get full movement back this is going to take at least three months before you start to feel like you can use the hand a bit more functionally any early expectation settings really helpful so I'll look at x-rays from that perspective but also from a is there anything else going on can I build a bit of a picture in my head assessment wise they should have already had really good screening through orthopedics and fracture clinic and nine times out of ten that will have happened where they'll have had neurovascular checks they'll have checked for um kind of other other potential complications such as tendon ruptures that should all have already happened but i'll always redo that because what i'd hate to do is for that patient six weeks down the line to come back and something they go oh yeah it's been like that all the way through when I told them right at the beginning that I couldn't do this and that you've just kind of taken that for granted. So I'll always do a neurological screen. So making sure that they've got sensation. Um, Sometimes when they've just come out of cast, that might not be the Mm. case because they'll have been kind of manhandled a bit, if you like. So just kind of safety netting them around that. But You're largely checking here for peripheral nerve problems. We're not thinking about kind of myotomes, dermatomes. We're thinking, have they got sensation in the median nerve, distribution, ulnar nerve, radial nerve, and then having a little look at power. That's going to be quite difficult to assess because of the nature of their injury. But generally speaking, if they can thumb extend, if they can thumb adduct, um, if they can make a bit of a fist, at least you've got a starting point of, okay, we've got some activity here. They're not going to be able to do loads with the hand but it will give you an idea to kind of monitor going through. I'll always look at EPL, extensor pollicis longus tendon, um, because sometimes that can rupture during the injury because of where it's located and where the fracture site is, or because of the kind of sequelae of how it's been managed and because of the, the kind of fallout of the fracture so that could be attritional wear so where it's kind of been attenuated over the fracture segment or callus formation just rubbed on it in a different way so it can rupture or as part of any kind of fixation or something like that so I'll always check EPL because there is an incidence of EPL rupture with uh,
0: wrist fractures. Awesome. So how are you doing that? What what do you look at for EPR rupture?
1: So I'll look at them being able to wiggle the tip of their thumb. So you want them to be able to extend the tip of their thumb. And if they can, do an extra thumb extension as well, just so I can double check. Mm. That will be painful because of where the tendon runs along the fracture site. So Mm -hmm. it is a difficult one, but essentially you're looking for them to be able to to thumb extend the, the tip of their thumb. And then also just double checking the thumb extension where possible.
0: Cool. So it's almost like a thumbs up, but making sure that when they do the thumbs up, the IP joint of the thumb is extended rather than flexed. flexed.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Superb. That's really brilliant. And I totally agree with you upon the education part of that first assessment session, because like you said, the number of patients that I've seen in the past who have been worried about moving, and as you said, wrist fractures are one of those fractures where early movement is so paramount and therefore it's about really going through the detail of as you brilliantly talked about the fractures okay it has healed you've had your x-rays you've been to see orthopedics they're happy with things you know they're the experts on fractures and we'll
1: continue to monitor this nice. yeah. because often they they already know that they've seen everyone and everyone else has said it's okay if they're still worried after that mm. you know it's, it's a really valid concern for them so saying everything looks good at the moment. We're going to see each other quite a lot across the course of your rehab. We're probably going to see each other fortnightly. Mm. We will keep checking on things. And if something does not look right, I will make sure that it's dealt with. So they've kind of got that reassurance that you are going to do something. And sometimes they just need to hear that, um, that if, if something isn't right, if we feel something's not right, this is what we're going to do about it.
0: Brilliant. Love that. And uh, as you said Pain, painkillers, and pain control. This is really crucial, isn't it, for these patients?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, sometimes that can be kind of your analgesia, so paracetamol. Or other painkillers that they're able to take but also talking about things like potentially wearing splints mm. if they've spent six weeks in a cast and then suddenly they've got nothing that can feel quite scary um, so sometimes there is a role for issuing futura splints here for them to wear as kind of a um, a weaning out process if you mm. like and um, and getting them to do skincare and things as well yeah. so that arm will have been in a cast for a really long time it's probably scaly and smelly and dry and not very pleasant for them so talking them through giving it a really good wash in some some warm water trying to do some of your hand exercises there um mm. because that'll feel really nice and um, give it a good moisturize and make sure you, you give it some tlc um is, is a definite another thing that I, I would cover in first session too
0: Lovely, yeah. I've had some patients where, uh, especially if you work in a hand therapy environment where there's a easy access to a sink and things like that. Sometimes I've even done with patients, "Do you want to go and wash your hands now?" Because yeah. it, they're as you said, the cast will come off it,
1: and they've got all these sticky, fluffy bits still on yeah. them, and yeah, it's not very nice. So. It's not
0: very nice, and it, and it feels quite alien to them when they've they've had this this hand sort of locked away in this cast and sometimes they don't really feel like moving it because they're a bit put off by the smell and they're a bit put off by the skin and so sometimes I have washed hands there and then you know said to the patient should we do let's go and just make sure that you can feel the warm water on your skin and make sure that feels okay for you because sometimes the sensation can feel a bit strange and sometimes they will wash their hands and put the moisturizer on straight away and uh, and, and almost feel like they can just get started quickly because they feel a bit more comfortable about their hand rather than, if you excuse me, saying, they've got this smelly, scaly wrist. They, they've they washed it, they've cared for it a little bit more and, and, and therefore they can access. It's a bit like, sometimes a bit like washing your hair where it, when it feels quite greasy, isn't it? When you washed it, you feel, oh, that feels better. Yes. And so I think with, with these patients, that's definitely the case. And uh, I totally go back to what you were saying about painkillers. The number of patients that I've had who don't take their painkillers after a wrist fracture and you can really tell 2 weeks 4 weeks 6 weeks into your physio when they are not making progress because the, one of the key things i've always educated on with patients in early wrist fracture management is that when they're doing their exercises it is going to be sore it's not going to be it's not going to be comfortable in the early stages and therefore especially after the casts just come off and they've had this really stiff wrist in a very neutral position and then suddenly they're trying to move it, it is going to be sore. And so I I often say to patients that unfortunately, this is one of those times in physio, which we don't talk about or advocate that much anymore. It is one of those times in physio where there is a little bit of no pain, no gain. I probably don't use those words because it, it gives people the wrong expectation. But I will say to patients, we do need to push this a little bit. If if the line of pain is 6 out of 10, I want you to take this to 6.5 or 6.3, 6.4, just part, past the point of pain so you can start nudging it a little bit more each day and therefore your painkillers are absolutely crucial to allow you to do that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I agree with you. This is probably one where I push them a little bit harder than um, other other areas. Um, but I think given that most of them will have been immobilized for a good six weeks, we can be relatively confident that there's not going to be much that's going to impact yeah. things. Obviously, that's not to say go away and get them to do like, handstand press-ups and crazy things but being sensible i think there is a real common misconception with patients that um once their wrist's been in a cast for six weeks that it's healed and fine and when the cast comes off they should be able to get back to normal so sometimes the pain can come as a bit of a shock sometimes the stiffness can come as a bit of a shock so that kind of pain education package is really important there
0: Yeah, especially when actually sometimes it can feel quite comfortable in the cast. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they get quite used to, oh, this feels okay. This is comfortable. And then they can
1: function quite well. They learn to cope without their hand. And then suddenly it comes off and they're like, oh, yeah, I'll be fine. And then it's not.
0: Yeah, it's better. And once the painkillers have worn off uh, after that initial time and, oh, my goodness, this is actually really sore. Then they don't use it. Then it gets stiff. And you've got this real confrontation here, don't you, of... uh, when the pain levels have gone up a lot, but we need to push it. You know, when someone's pain levels have gone up a lot, the first thing they're thinking is, right, I need to take it easy. I need to slow down. I better protect this because it's so painful. Actually, I'm really sorry. This is the time where we do really need to move it. And like you said, we can still use simple exercises, but those simple exercises, we're aiming to do them in a way that Nudges that patient's movement a little bit more each day and that means trying to push it a little bit, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Great. So why don't we quickly, if you don't mind, Marie, uh, talk about some of the key exercises that we might do in the early stages. So at very first session, we can think about the wrist but also not the wrist we need to make sure the elbow's moving well we need to make sure the fingers are moving well so you're doing you know gripping and finger straightening extension exercises as Marie talked about using the thumb with both flexion and extension and that kind of if you're familiar with the kampanji scale which is moving the thumb into opposition to touch each of the fingers and getting the thumb to touch all parts of the fifth digit so you're going right across the palm as well and that's just to make sure that the elbow and the wrist and the fingers sorry are, are moving well and 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 comfortable doing that and then as far as the um early wrist exercises go we tend to see a lot of relatively passive slash active assisted exercises here at at the early stages marie would you agree yeah
1: absolutely and like i mentioned right at the beginning it's tailoring it to suit the patient some people Mm. are going to be able to do a lot more but essentially you've just got to get the wrist moving in all planes of movement passively active assistedly however they can manage just to get it moving
0: Great. Uh, Some of the things that I see in this stage in particular, I don't know if you see this as well, Marie, is that because patients feel that it is painful and it is challenging to move the wrist when they do, when they're trying to do passive wrist extension or active assisted wrist extension they actually push the fingers a long way back and they don't actually push the wrist
1: yeah absolutely there's a lot of poor technique because you're trying to compensate with the body areas so making sure that you're really coaching them that it's the wrist joint that you want them to get moving Mm. not not the fingers because yeah you'll get all kinds of elbow movement and finger movement to try and make it look like they're achieving more
0: yeah I've, I've definitely with wrist extension in particular because it is quite a painful movement I, i've seen patients a lot kind of pushing their fingers back and saying yeah i've been moving it really far but the wrist itself is still in a relatively neutral position so that, i think that
1: being said wrist extension is more difficult yes, to it regain is. yes it it's is. much more difficult flexion, to regain yeah. that wrist flexion is much easier so it could just be that that's the ceiling of what they can achieve and this is where it becomes True. really difficult um i'd say that that's someone that i'd really coach their technique but if a I don't know, the three month mark, they still can't get much further than whatever degree it is that you've measured into wrist extension. That might be the max that they're going to be able to achieve.
0: That's great. Yeah, absolutely great. Totally appreciate that. So we might be seeing here the um, passive or active assisted wrist flexion where you're really trying to bend the wrist downwards. We often talk about a prayer stretch where you've got the two hands together and you're really trying to make sure that when you ask the patient to Uh, put their hands together with the palms touching and they move their elbows up so that it's almost as if the hands are in a prayer position that they are still contacting with the palms as much as possible because that means the wrist is in extension. We then talk about um, passive or active assisted supination and pronation. One way that I like to do this is using a table so that the patient is relaxing their their elbows and forearms on the table when they pronate and supinate. The reason being is that if they don't, if they do this in mid-air, then there's a lot of elbow or or, uh, proximal radio ulnar joint supination and pronation and actually the wrist is still in a relatively neutral Mm -hmm. position. So, So those are some really important things to consider there. And as we said, key things for the first session or the early stage, those range of movement exercises we've just talked through Education, as Marie said, about reassuring the patient that they can get moving, that they can take their painkillers in order to make sure that they can get those uh, exercises in and that it is important to try and push their range of movement. This is not going to be comfortable in the early stages, but it's really important that they do so. And then perhaps over the course of the mid-stage, so perhaps this might be where a patient is between 8 to 12 weeks, you might want to start them to go through some weight-bearing at the wrist joint. So it might be that they're uh, standing up with their hands on their dining table and then they're weight-bearing from side to side from one to the other to make sure that they're getting some weight through that irritated wrist. This is where we might start some strengthening exercises, maybe with something called theraputty. If you're familiar with theraputty, it's it's a, a a putty with different resistance levels based on the color of it, so you can get them to practice their grip strength, uh, get them to practice um, the movement of their hand into supination and pronation with perhaps a light weight such as a tin of beans, so that they're able to control that movement. And of course, we're still trying to strengthen the elbow. Uh, and the shoulder as well with normal day-to-day activities and of course in this stage you're really hoping that the patient is doing the majority of their functional simple tasks like perhaps boiling the kettle with a little bit of water in it perhaps they're carrying a a pot that they might cook their rice or pasta in with a little bit of water in it and then as time goes on can they put more and more water into the kettle can they put more and more water into the pan to try and uh, get that volume increasing to therefore get the weight improving
1: i give that as an exercise so i'll get them to do isometric wrist strengthening using a pan so getting them to start off with their smallest pan and just holding that and then gradually getting them to go to a heavier pan to more heavy set items or pans with things in it because it's a really functional activity and the majority of the time when we're using our wrist for strength it's Isometric rather than concentric or eccentric. Beautiful. So it's a really functional task. So, and when you think about the patient group, the age group that have wrist fractures, we're typically talking more elderly people. Yeah. So, rather than thinking about getting them back to sports and things, you're probably talking more about getting them back to ADLs, cooking, cleaning, that kind of thing.
0: That's a really important point, Maria. I'm really glad you've mentioned that. And, and I'd like to focus on that a bit more. Let's talk about that. As you said, when we're strengthening a lot with these patients, rather than strengthening towards end range flexion or end range extension, like you said, we're often strengthening with the wrist in a relatively neutral position because that's where it's functional, isn't it? We don't hold a kettle in wrist flexion or wrist extension, Yeah, when
1: you actually start to think about this, most of the time when you're doing gripping things, your wrist's in slight wrist extension, so you need a good kind of 10, 20 degrees of wrist extension to do gripping activities and be able to Mm -hmm. hold that well. But the majority of things when you think about when you need your strength at your wrist, it's not through movement, it's fixed in one position. And something else is moving that to move whatever item it is that you're holding. So I don't. I'm not a huge fan of giving through range strengthening Mm. because you don't really need it especially for the patient group that we're thinking about here, I'll give isometrics, I might give some in-range stuff for picking things up and moving mm-hmm. them, but on the whole, they need to be able to have good endurance and in, in slight wrist extension, lots of isometrics and kind of functional, relatable yeah. exercises rather than TheraBand through range.
0: Brilliant. Yeah, If we let's talk about it for a minute. Carrying a kettle, carrying a pot full of water, lifting a bag of shopping, lifting the laundry basket, lifting up a a, a a bottle of water or a heavy sack of potatoes or something like that, the wrist is always in a relatively isometric position, like you said. So that's the reasoning there. One thing that we might talk about, though, on that note, as perhaps the final subject, is supination and pronation. Because when we think about twisting, uh, you know, those kind of movements which in really involve supination and pronation... That's where we do get some kind of through-range movement, but that can be quite painful in the early to mid stages. So this might be something you reserve for the latter stages of rehab, where we've seen uh, individuals perhaps using something like a hammer, which has a clear heavy weight on one end of the object and then one end where it isn't. So if you, in the normal way that you might hold a hammer, where you're holding the handle, where the heavy part of the hammer is at the top end, and then you supinate so that the heavy end of the hammer is encouraging the wrist into more supination and then you might turn it over into pronation again the heavy end of the hammer is away from the wrist so that is you can imagine you're doing that now or even grab a hammer whilst we're whilst you're listening to this and just do those movements and you can feel that it really does cause you to have to control your wrist um when you're doing those things so marie Thank you so much for joining us. It's been really brilliant to kind of go through this run through wrist fractures with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much Marie for joining me for another episode and of course if anyone listening would like more on wrist fractures we have a brilliant on-demand wrist fractures webinar where you can listen to the thoughts of Mr Ray Chari orthopedic surgeon, Dr Jack Hurley specialist GP and orthopedic physio Gemma Clark where they go through even more on wrist fractures. So thanks for listening, see you soon.